0: Paramhansa Yogananda A Biography by Swami Kriyananda Talk 3 by Asha Praver February 28, 2012 Copyright 2012 Ananda Church of Self-Realization Palo Alto
1: Does anybody have any thoughts or comments about what we talked about last week?
0: Um, The uh, only thing... That, you know, as far as no ego was directing outward. So serving, helping, not thinking, not self-referencing. It's the only mm-hmm. possibility I could have of no ego. Periodically, you forget entirely that you're, you know, who you identify with. Yeah. But it's not real obvious and real clear.
1: Well, because when you're not having an ego, there's no one to remember that you're not having one. <laughs> 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 but Yes. Okay, any other comments or thoughts from...
0: Uh, I was listening to the rebroadcast and took a note uh, where you're talking about when in the spine you're living in the uh, energy up and down rather than in form. Yes. And I was looking for something in the Raja Yoga book, Uh which I'm studying, and I came across man errors when he identifies himself with form.
1: Yeah. It's exactly.
0: So that seemed to be appropriate. Uh, and then I wrote something that's not quite prose, and it's not quite poetry, but it's sort of uh-huh. the idea of getting this concept over. And it's about four lines. Uh, you are now flowing. Part of all that is reacting to its action, acting from past reactions, all energy coming and going. Uh, the ocean's whole expanse and power uh, in the temporary form of waves.
1: Oh, that's lovely. That's very nice. Yeah. So
0: uh, that was trying to convey the idea of uh-huh. egolessness, not ad- identifying with the form of the wave, but what the whole ocean is doing.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. You know, a big concept like that comes down to not reacting when little things happen. I mean, it, it's like a concept like that seems huge, but it really is a question of when things happen that you want to take personally and react to, you stay in the spine and you stay in the up and down energy. So it's, all those things just go right together. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, Adam needs to speak.
2: I guess the one thing that I kept coming back to because i did try you know gazing into master's eyes um Uh and thinking about that but it's sort of like as a mental concept you know Uh it's hard to wrap your mind around but i guess one thing i did practice this week was um just thinking of the fabric of the universe being the om vibration Uh and Bharat's class helped a lot with that and just thinking of myself and this body as of the exact same fabric as literally everything and Uh that was pretty cool
1: yeah, that's pretty cool <laughs> that's like maximum cool yeah yeah and it, and it actually
2: for a while just you know in terms of being in when you talk about being in a flow of energy uh-huh. that helped you just it helped me be very present and very much in the flow of whatever was happening
1: Uh huh. you know it's interesting i'm i'm working with actual physical fabric a lot right now because i'm making costumes but when everything's made out of the same fabric, it all blends together. It's actually just, even though that word has many meanings, just literally thinking about, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing blue on the blue chair and the blue chairs are on the blue carpet. If everything is cut out of the same fabric, even though it has its own shape, it all blends together. Isn't it, it's a fun way to think about it. That's why school uniforms, you know, we all wear our uh, physical uniform. We're all made out of the vibrating ohm. That's a nice way to think about it. Any other comments or thoughts? All right. Yes? Okay. Oh, I see, that's why. I couldn't remember why we had to turn it off, but there was a good reason. I see. That's what I was hearing. Yeah, that's a little disconcerting. Bad enough to hear me once without hearing me twice. (laughs) just separated by a second. Yeah. Not such a good plan. Okay. Now I have to find the page. There it is. Okay, friends. So I started in on respect last week at the very end of the class, and I'll read it again just because here we are again. Um, Another trait that always amazed me in him was the deep, impersonal respect he gave everyone His unwillingness to let Debbie criticize a man for being in a state of feeling no pain. His perfect willingness to have people with whom he didn't agree have the last word. These are examples merely of a characteristic that is marvelous to contemplate contemplate in one as great in the eyes of the world as Yogananda was. Um, I did start speaking about it, but I'll just sort of give it a little more energy because it deserves more energy. Um... You know, it's one of the hardest things in the world is to respect other people um, because they they do so many things that um, make you feel justified in not giving them that kind of respect. Um, and we have... Um, for me, I've noticed... I'll, I'll sort of give you a, a longer experience that I, was very odd for me. Because I have a lot of willpower and a lot of... Uh, uh, because and because I I have a habit of authority and I don't hesitate to declare what I think is so and act upon it. Every every virtue is a vice <laughs> taken too far. Every vice <laughs> is a virtue taken too far. Um, and I, I can I'm creative. I'm a problem solver. You know I have all those those are all good characteristics. I used to use a, a lot of that energy, um, to take care of people that I felt needed help in one way or another. And a lot of times, something looks like a virtue, but the core energy behind it is not a virtue. We do something because in some way we're nervous and we try to create physical conditions outside of ourselves that ease our inner nervousness. And uh, as a consequence, I realized one day that I was extremely anxious when other people had difficulties in their lives and a great deal of my apparent servicefulness was actually based on a deep-seated fear that they couldn't take care of themselves unless I helped them. And it was a very interesting realization because I realized the core of that was a fundamental lack of respect for other people's capacity to live their own lives. And it, it, it came out as being, you know, really helpful. But it wasn't really helpful. It was actually not helpful. Because it, it was, it was uh, an aberration in my own energy. And straight, the strange way I sort of finally put it together was I realized that just, I don't want to overstate it, but in a general sense, I don't live in fear of my own karma. I don't necessarily look forward to some of the debts that are probably remaining to be paid. I can imagine conditions that would be very challenging to face. But I, I'm not afraid fundamentally because I believe that if God gives me a problem, he'll give me the strength to solve it. Oh, here's a question. Won't he teach everybody else like that? Like, where did I suddenly become so competent to deal with my own life and everybody else is incapable of it? And it was very odd how um, compassion service was actually a profound lack of respect for other people's abilities, and uh, a, a lack of, um, well, faith in God, but faith in them too. And I, from that I began to reflect about how, how calmly Swamiji can just deal with everybody's issues. I, I actually was in a conversation, I don't mean to overstate this, but there was a woman who was peripherally involved with Ananda and another another place, who, who actually committed suicide. And, and Swami's relationship to her suicide was extremely impersonal. You know, I mean, like almost everyone was really anxious about it. And his response was, well, you know, that's what she did. He wasn't happy about it and he prayed for her, but he wasn't panicked by it either it was It was her destiny, and she was going to live through it and He was just had the calm confidence that she would live through it because he knew that the divinity was in her and a great deal of time of the time we make really stupid decisions and say dumb things and do dumb things in regard to other people when on some fundamental level we no longer believe um, that the divinity is present within them and that their soul is in charge. Um, We may perceive, you know, that woman uh, committing suicide, Swami, you know, made some very pointed remark about, you know, what an unwise and unfortunate thing that was for her to do. It wasn't like he was indifferent to the consequences of it. Um, But it's possible to perceive things very straight, exactly as they are, But if you have that essential respect for the divine capacity to do its own thing through everyone, then you don't have to have an emotional reaction to it. It's just, well, they're just working their way through what they need to work their their way through. And the real quality of that is respect. And it's one of those things that works uh, both ways. You practice it on yourself, too. You, You practice on the fact that if God sends it to me, I can handle it. And you practice it on other people. If God sends it to them, then I guess there's a good reason for it and they can handle it. And of course that kind of respect absolutely requires that you stand back from one incarnation. You know, you can't have that kind of respect for people if you're really caught up in the, what about today, what about tomorrow, what about the next day? You know, so much is about um, very long rhythms I've shared with you all before the exercise that I read about with a man who worked with dying people when he would have these uh, conferences with people who had terminal illnesses, retreats. And he would ask them at the beginning to make two lists. And one list would be all the things that that they're going to miss out on because they think their life is going to end soon. And the other list is all the things that they get to escape from because their life is going to end soon. And, you know, that's really a significant list. And uh, and people think that they're going to have to work with what they're giving up, but the real work is all those things you think you're going to escape from by dying. Because that's a much more likely source of what it is that you have, what your unfinished business. Um, both Both are karmically true, but it's very interesting. And on that occasion, which I was many years ago, I read that, I really started a practice which i've kept up ever since which is trying to be very vigilant about any creeping thought that says i get to get away with this i know a woman once apparently they say that the terrible twos repeat themselves in a child when he's about 13 and 14 that early adolescence is very similar to toddlerhood i knew a parent uh, who was a, a, a reluctant mother who basically just tried to outlast the the young childhood of her child and never really quite fully engaged. And then when the adolescence came around, it all, you know, it was all deja vu all over again. (laughs) And uh, the woman sort of said ruefully, I thought I was going to get away with it. You know, and then that, the second time was, she was a more mature person and she, meaning the second round of that kind of rebellion. And she related to it very differently. But the thought that we think we're going to, get away with something. um, Just that very idea, and oh, I was going to say, just the calm realization that everything is just, everything has to be faced and everything's going to work itself out. And no matter what a person is doing and what they're dealing with, sooner or later they're going to face it and sooner or later they're going to overcome it. Oh, and what I was saying about the death and the dying, you know, it it was really interesting because once you get a really solid sense of reincarnation in your mind. And that was one of the interesting things about that is you can't go to I'm going to escape something. It's like you, you can't find it because you know you're not. You know, and the more deeply you get into reincarnation and the more deeply you practice the fact that it's always now. You know, there are certain themes that just repeat and repeat on the spiritual path. And they repeat for very good reason that if you can capture some of those essential attitudes, which is one of the reasons we're dealing with Master's 32 salient characteristics, you capture these essential attitudes and everything else follows. It's picking up the puppet from the right string. And once you pick it up from the right string, everything just falls into place and you don't have to worry about all the little details. They all assume their sort of natural order and just flow for you. And you don't have to worry about this little problem and that little problem and this little disappointment and that little trouble. You have it from the right string. Overcoming ego, which is self-evident, is the first one we talked about. But respect. This one we're talking about right now. Others and yourself. And in this view that you're always going to come back and you're always going to learn the lesson. You will learn the lesson and you will overcome the problem. There's absolutely no doubt that you and everybody around you will. So... The master's having being able to look at us and seeing all our past lives and all our future lives because when you stand in the eternal now, you are at the center point of the whole circle and past and future are arrayed around you. The master lives in the eternal now and he's looking at you now but he could just as easily look at you in the past and in the future. And what is the real perspective? That's another, you know, just really interesting question to ask. Are you any more yourself now than you were or will be? You see? It's just what you're cut out like at the moment. And what the respect comes for is not for the incredibly creative foibles that you've managed to act out in the moment. The respect is for the inevitable fact of, the, of, of moving in from that peripheral circle of karma into the center point where the master himself lives. And uh, once we capture that, it's no effort, you see, and this is something that Swamiji has informed us a lot, it's no effort for the master to respect us. It's simply when he looks at us, he sees something other than just the struggling little reality that's so confused. He sees that divine current, the uh, river seeking the sea. And now it's going downhill for a few, you know, sort of hellish incarnations. And now it's going up for some good ones. And and inevitably, it will resolve it all. It, it's very, very, very freeing. A great deal of this world becomes much less angst-filled. And people's actions... I, I I had a very hard time have had a hard time especially in my earlier years by the by the impersonal way that swamiji and others who had far more understanding than i would regard other people's difficulties whereas i felt excuse me <coughs> i felt morally obligated to become anxious about them <laughs> <laughs> And I perceived that they didn't. And then as I was describing it, I gradually realized that my anxiety was a profound lack of respect. And you know how, how empowering, and I, that's a very popular word, I don't like to use trendy words, but you know how strengthening it is when somebody is not upset by what upsets you? when they're When they're obviously sympathetic and they obviously appreciate that something real is happening to you but they're not flustered by it. You know it's interesting this is just a peripheral but in in teaching us how to be spiritual counselors Swamiji has warned us he said you should be sympathetic but not too sympathetic. He said sometimes when you give people too much sympathy for their difficulties it just increases the delusion in their mind that they have a really serious problem. Isn't that just that's so different than the way the normal mind works? But you know, you should be sympathetic and you'll often see with Swamiji, he'll let you, when he used to speak more with people individually, he would let you say a little bit and then he would change the subject. (laughs) It was very disturbing to people. (laughs) He would just think that's enough. And sometimes people have had very serious things happen to them. He'll talk to them once and then that's enough. But you still feel his tremendous support. But his support is for the fact that you'll be fine. And he's not really interested in processing. He actually asked me once, what is this, all this processing people talk about all the time? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think he knew what was meant, but why? But on the other hand, you see, that's very, That's as I was starting to say, that's very strengthening. That just the simple belief that this is fine. You can cope with this. You'll be. You'll get through this. Um, we have to think what's appropriate for us at, at our level of development, because sometimes we need to be more compassionate and more kind. Yeah, when a master is completely in control of his energy, he can choose to be more impersonal sometimes than is entirely appropriate for us. But still. Um, It it also, and this is the last thing I'll say about this quality, the more you respect people, the less fear you have in your life because you're really respecting God's power in everyone. And of course, fear is the great enemy of almost everything because it absolutely bewilders the mind when you become afraid. So what am I really afraid of here? What do I think is going to happen? It's a very good question. You know, what do I think is going to happen to that homeless person? What do I think will happen if that homeless person asks me for money? What do I think will happen if my, this is a hard one, if my husband, my wife, my children, my mother, my father, somebody really close to me, what if they really do just go in a direction I don't want them to go? You know, what will really happen to me? What am I afraid of? What part of God's plan do I not trust? You know what? What soul nature do I not respect in that person? But you see, then you have to have a much broader picture of uh, life itself. We get very small, time, and life. Any comments or thoughts about that? 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 And of course, it applies to oneself. When I was having such a difficult time writing that book about Swamiji, you know, he, I, I have to write a book about, writing the book about Swamiji, about how Swami worked with me writing the book about Swamiji. It's very, very interesting. At a certain point, I was just really hitting the wall. And uh, he, call, he called me on the phone and was talking to me on the phone. He said, maybe you should just give this up. Maybe you should just give up this project. It's really not going anywhere. Maybe you should just not do this you know because a part of me was like still in the state of i'm only doing this cuz you asked me kind of energy and if you didn't ask me my life wouldn't be so hard you know just bleh. <laughs> I was way out there with it but it was very interesting he was it was it was perfect because all of a sudden he had told me i didn't have to do it you know he gives me permission to quit apparently i was not so stupid as to think he'd actually given me permission to quit but it was, and I had to stop and think for a minute, and I said, no, I have something to say, and I'm going to figure out a way to say it. But it was, it was just the perfect response, and it was interesting because it actually gave me more respect for myself, because I really realized when I was faced with it that I did have something to say, and I was going to figure out how to say it. So the more we just sort of think in terms of respecting that divinity within us, you know what actually finally really saved me in that project? Was I realized I was the only person in my whole world who didn't believe I could write it. And I actually stood back and thought, what are the chances that all these people are wrong? It was was a very interesting mindset. I realized I must be the one who's wrong because all these people... Can't understand why I don't just do this job. I'm the only one who doesn't believe in me, and I thought, well, the odds are really great that I'm the one who's mistaken, and it it was a, it was very interesting. It was the the effect of respect. You know, they respected me more than I respected myself, and uh, I respected them too much to disregard their opinion. You see how complicated it got, but I could really feel the the power of that. And even Swamiji sort of pretending that he didn't believe in me anymore and I should just quit forced me to stand up for myself. Yeah. He gave you a to, you made the I can't. Can, exactly. And it wasn't just I'm doing this. Yeah, I'm, I'm the helpless little nothing here. I went through that same thing and I shared it with all of you at the time about the whole SRF situation when we went down there to pass out the book whenever that was a few weeks, a few months ago. I was doing that because he asked me. And then at a certain point I realized, no, I'm actually doing this because I really do believe in this myself. And it was, it was, uh, because he wrote to me and said, if you're only, because it was very controversial. And he said, I don't want anyone to do this who doesn't really want to do it. And he wrote to me and he said, if you're only doing this because I asked you, I don't want you to do it are you only doing this because I asked you? Of course I'm doing it because you asked me. I wouldn't have thought of this. But it wasn't even sincere because I might have thought about it. But he did ask me, but I was all for it as soon as he asked me. But I realized that I was... um, um, I was being immature. It's not enough to do the guru's will because the guru asked you and then just sort of mindlessly do what he says. You have to actually understand why he asked you you have to embrace the reasons behind why he asked you and you have to um, uh, accept them. Uh, you, you have to perceive the truth of the request, not merely the truth that you were asked. You know, it's, In other words, it can't be mindless obedience. It has to be cooperative obedience. It has to be a genuine understanding of why this is the right thing for me and that I would choose it for myself now that I understand it. And that whole SRF thing... I was just playing this game of, well, he asked me to do it. And for, in my case, I was playing that game because so many other people didn't want to do it that that was how I avoided having to deal with them. I said, well, he asked me to do it, so I'll do it. And if you can get him to say no, then I won't do it. You know, just like I just played the child. Um, he Changed his mind, and that's fine with me. But that was a real um, immature way to be a disciple. Uh, you have to really find out why it's true and then you have to really make it your own. Yes, of course, there may be a point in which you're only going along because you you will obey, you will cooperate, but you don't yet understand. But that's not the highest level. That's when Jesus said, um, you call me master, but I call you friend. Because the servant may do the master's bidding, but the servant is never... I'm um, a partner in what the master is doing, but a friend is a partner with his friend. And that's where Swamiji uh, and Master both say that friendship is the highest form of relationship because it's it's freely given between equals. And in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna calls Arjuna friend, in the Gita commentary there's a long description of how really splendid that is. You know, that he calls him friend. So it's it's a very it's all very interesting, and you see all of that comes back: respecting yourself, respecting others, finding your really honest position, and all of that. Very, 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 very interesting. Okay, any other comments, or questions, or thoughts on all of that? All right. Yeah, that's attunement. It's a it's a more mature level of attunement, exactly. Better to be a child, and to be a cooperative, obedient child but better to, to learn to be a friend, too. Yeah. That, that SRF thing was extremely interesting to me. I came to it, you know, 40 years I've been dealing with this. And in those last few weeks there, I, I really understood the importance of what we were doing and why we were doing it on a level of independence I'd never had of understanding before. It was very interesting for me. It's amazing. This path is so much fun. <laughs> you know, when I, we were talking about that last night... When I when I was 19 and first starting and living at 4th and Geary in this apartment in the back building there, I mean, it's all a mental picture I have. And Swami Kriyananda was uh, speaking on the radio and he had his radio program every Sunday morning and I'd sit in that big studio apartment I had and listen to him on the radio and I just thought, couple of years, samadhi for sure. <laughs> you know, the picture was so simple. It was just so simple in my mind. Yeah, just like, we'll just start and, you know, we'll knock this sucker off really fast, you know, just like that. And then I went to Ananda Village and it just got more and more and more. Um, I lived in, I grew up in El Paso, Texas um, until I was 15. And to get anywhere from El Paso, you drive across this long, featureless desert. These, you know, these, my childhood is, is filled with these long two-lane roads just going off forever through this sagebrush desert, my dad driving the car and the mirage that appears, the water mirage that appears on that and just for hours as a child I would try to catch that mirage, you know, thinking that if my dad just drove a little faster we would catch that mirage and uh, that the, when I, I've always thought of my life at Ananda as always having been that, that the water was right there and here I am and we'll just do a few kriyas and we'll be there (laughs) And no matter how much, the edge of it just keeps expanding out because it it literally goes to infinity. That, of course, is why it's been endlessly fascinating for four decades and it's never crossed my mind. You know, I've never been restless for anything else. What could you be restless for when this thing is so endlessly fascinating and no matter how close you get to it, it recedes off into the distance until we reach infinity. So, it, it it just has so many nuances. Anyway, it's great fun. Uh-huh. Thoughts, was there a comment there on that? No, just the mirage, or? Yeah, sometimes it's just hard. That's why that, when we were in the middle of the lawsuits and we were having to get up every day and go over to the Redwood City Courthouse and be tortured by the jury and the judge and the lawyers and the newspapers, I mean, It was hell. I said to David at one point in the middle of that, thank God I've had some other experiences on the spiritual path. You know, if this was my only experience, I mean, how could we handle this? But by that point, you know, a lot of other things had happened. And so we were having a really God-awful time. Like, so what? Sometimes it's terrible and then it's not. In fact, when Danny, Danny was in the middle of that, when he was just, you know, his wife was dying, his daughter was proving to um, have um, whatever you would say, differences of perception of reality. Um, he was being sued, and, he, and uh, he, he was driving from the Bay Area back up to Ananda village and be, you know to be back with his wife, who had stage four cancer at that point. And uh, he just forgot himself and was going about 85 across the Bay Bridge, and the policeman stopped him. And Danny started to tell him, you know, like, and then he said, oh, never mind, just write me the ticket. <laughs> you know, it's like I might be able to, you know, instinctively he was trying to talk him out of the ticket because he's that kind of guy. But then he thought, never mind. But he sort of said to Swami, I think that the ticket was the, he said, you know, what is going on here? And Swami just looked at him and sort of shrugged too. He said, I have, all I can say is that all karma ends and at some point the karma will end you know and uh, it did and and i've often remembered that just whatever's happening all karma ends so no matter what you're going through it will end and depending on your where you are on the circle of the eternal now is whether or not that looks really terrible to you or not if you're if you're really caught in the transitory piece, in which you know progress happens a minute at a time, it, it can be really depressing. Like, like Swami tells the story of Norman being so depressed and Swami trying to comfort him by saying, well, you know, I mean, how long can these moods last? 40, 50 years? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that, you know, you just let life will end. And Norman went, as Swami said, went screaming from the room. That was not comforting to him. (laughs) To Swamiji, that seemed really comforting. You know, so you have one lousy life. Like, what difference does it make? (laughs) Just keep doing the right thing. All karma ends. (laughs) But do you know the respect for the divine inside, just to tie it slightly to what we're saying? The disidentification, if there's such a word as disidentify, with ego. You see how all that makes it easier? Because you stand closer to the eternal now, and you just watch the waves go, and so they they bounce up and down, like, big deal. Big deal when you're in it, nothing to be sneezed at, but the other part of it is just a different perspective. And it takes more than a couple of years for most of us to reach the Mahdi, but, Om. Okay, this is the third quality of Master. I love the fact that this is the third quality. He had an impish and utterly delightful sense of humor. This trait may be seen in some of the jokes he told, many of which he'd heard from others, so now I get to read you some jokes. One was a somewhat left-handed compliment, which he told with a childlike smile. Your teeth are like stars, they come out at night. (laughs) Another was of three men, an Irishman, an Englishman, and a Scotsman. All three were drinking whiskey when a fly landed in each of their glasses. The Irishman simply sloshed his glass sideways, losing a fair amount of whiskey along with the fly. The Englishman carefully flicked the fly out of the glass, but the Scotsman squeezed the fly. (laughs) I still remember vividly the little little touch of glee with which Master uttered that word, squeezed. (laughs) In still another joke, three Scotsmen attended church. As the collection plate was approaching them, one of them fainted and the other two carried him out. (laughs) So inventive. I'm sure he would have greatly enjoyed this one too, though I confess I'm not sure he heard it. An Irish woman was coming through U.S. customs carrying a suspicious-looking bottle. What's that? cried the customs inspector. Oh, sir, it's only holy water. The official opened the bottle and sniffed its contents. Aha, he cried, as I suspected, Irish whiskey. Glory be to God, she she said, a miracle. (laughs) 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 In dictating his Bhagavad Gita commentaries, the master gave the advice to eat only a little bit, but frequently, frequently stokum stokum anakoda, Sanskrit scholars, please forgive me if I have that wrong. This is how I remember the foreign sounding words he pronounced. Dorothy Taylor, his secretary, mistyped the phrase to read, stonum stonum a little bit, but frequently. (laughs) This was too delicious for master not to quote to me later with a hearty chuckle. Finally, because I could go on indefinitely in this vein, I recall how he once came into the monk's dining room between meals and found it an embarrassingly utter mess. All he did was say with a smile, well, it might be worse. So much for certain disciples' description of him as a stern, even scowling disciplinarian. That whole section is a very important one, and Swami really addresses... That whole subject of the misperception of Master in Yogananda for the world, but he, Swamiji himself, you know, has a very um, uh, active sense of humor. You know, he's 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 often telling jokes. He's often seeing the funny side of situations. He's very much inclined to make a quip about this or that. But there's two, there's several realities about this that that is well illustrated. You know. For Swamiji to say that Master had a sense of humor would be one thing. For him to actually tell you the kind of jokes he liked, and even to add in one that Master would have liked. Um, and it, it, it's really interesting to just sort of see what Master's humor was about. First of all, he didn't mind at all making fun of people. and he I mean, he didn't mind making fun of stereotypes and... He wasn't concerned about offending the Scotch, the Scot people, or offending the Irish, or offending the English. He just thought that things are as they are and we can just laugh about them. We don't have to be so delicate about it. But of course, the jokes that he told were kindly jokes. You know, they were just about the qualities, the Irish generous nature, the extreme uh, fastidiousness of the British and the the notorious uh, tight-fistedness of the people from scotland so even though he was had all that respect for people he was very helpful to everyone nonetheless he didn't mind laughing about these things he didn't mind chuckling with his secretary over about his secretary's mistake um he he meant not all of his jokes were about people's nationalities but nowadays people are so delicate about everything. But the other thing about his humor is that it was clean. Um, it was good-natured. You know, it wasn't, the joke wasn't a, about making a fool out of somebody or um, somebody, somebody making a fool out of themselves. There was nothing put down at all about the humor, even though he was talking about people's characteristics. It was all, it's all very um, light-hearted. It's a God's eye view of the world, as Swami described P.G. Woodhouse. And there's no sarcasm in it. You know, it just is what it is. It's seeing circumstances as they are and then finding the humorous side. I was with Swamiji once, um, actually standing on the balcony of the condominium in Hawaii where he was working on the path, editing the path. Circumstances were about the third floor. We're looking down at the swimming pool and the ocean is right there. So the waves are on the ocean and there was a sort of foam on the swimming pool a little bit in the water like sometimes happens in a pool. I'm not quite sure why. And Swamiji just said, what's the foam in the pool? And I said, white caps, like that. (laughs) And it was sort of odd because it it struck me at the moment because I didn't hesitate. I didn't, just nothing. It's like he asked a a sensible question. I gave an absurd answer and we both laughed. And then I asked him the question. I said, where does humor come from? You know, what is humor about? And he, he was a very, he gave a serious answer to that question. He said, to a certain extent, having a sense of humor is a spiritual quality because it's the the ability to be detached enough from circumstances to see it from a completely other perspective and often to be detached enough to see it from an absurd perspective and to realize that we don't have to be so invested in this. We don't have to be so invested in whether the people from Scotland are tight-fisted that we cannot tell a very funny joke based on the tradition of them being tight-fisted. And, you know, and he as a Bengali doesn't have to be so careful as to not do it. It's all, you know, just enjoying the fact that many funny things happen in life. And the other story that Swami told, which is really a amazing mix of qualities, was the man who was staying in Mount Washington and he wanted to put on the dance performance. And he danced the the hunter stalking the deer and the deer dying, and then the hunter carrying. And it went on interminably, and he was a terrible dancer. And Swami describes it all in great detail, and most of you have read it. But but Swami describes sitting with Master and them just almost laughing themselves sick, and having to sort of control their laughter, because there they were in the audience, and um, when Swami started to, to laugh a little bit out loud, Master sort of pleaded with him, don't, don't, you know. If you give in, we will neither of us be able to control ourselves? That was what was implied there. But then afterwards, when the man complained about the musicians, Master was very sympathetic. And he said, I understand. And Swamiji said, remarks, and he did. He did understand. He both understood that the man was foolish and, and just comical in his his art, but also when the man himself, you know, had his feeling, her, feelings hurt, Master also understood that. And he could just see it from all sides and he wasn't afraid to enjoy all sides of it. You know, certain people, Vidura is a very good example. Vidura can tease people more than anyone I know and just get away with it because he has this sort of childlike quality of appreciation for everyone that allows him to make fun of you. And I've seen other people sometimes try to tease and they can't get away with it. You know, the same qualities, but there's not that same sort of childlike acceptance. When there's a... I, I know a... I remember once Kalyani, who had a very strong personality and you, you didn't... Um, you didn't go against her lightly because if she, if she uh, was... Um, if she was felt strongly about something and you, you weren't on her side, she could be a, very, a force to reckon with. And, and Vidura just won her. And we were at an Indian dinner together. And there was one, I don't know whether it was the dessert or something, but she'd carefully kept it on the side of her plate and eaten everything around it. And then Vidura just reached over, stuck his fork in it, and popped it in his mouth. You know? <laughs> 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 just totally like that. And she just looked at him and burst out laughing, you know. It was just such an outrageous thing to do. But it was just done with so much, you know, um, joy in living. That you just don't have to be serious all the time. And so Master's also telling us how to be devotees. The fact that he would tell jokes, that he would make fun of people's habits, that he would even laugh at, at absurd things that were happening, but then still be kind about it you know, he's teaching us how to be people, how to live, how to live the way we're really supposed to live. Swamiji, he, he could be so funny sometimes, and but often teasing on the mark. I remember once there was this woman who she had a very romantic attitude toward life. And he started singing, Love is a many-splendored thing. And he sang the whole song, you know, with as much over-the-top, you know, kind of, in this... Poor girl had to just sit there. and But she began to laugh too, you know, because it was just, it was teasing on the mark, but it was still, it was so perfect. I remember I was just, uh, my friend Lakshmi is visiting me, and I remember we were in San Francisco. This could have, you know, it was probably before 1980. And uh, we wanted to go to a movie, and we had the movie section and Swami started reading the names of the movies. You know, and some of the movies are just terrible names, even then. And we were just in stitches, just him reading the names of the movies because each one was more absurd than the one after. And it just, it was out of nothing. But it just sort of out an exuberant pleasure in life to To f- see the humorous side of things and to make humorous jokes. But he, he doesn't write it here, but he says it in other places. But when Master wanted to be serious, nothing in the world could take him out of that. And if the humor was inappropriate or unkind, you know, there would be no response. That's certainly what I've seen with Swamiji. I remember once at, we were at the table in our house and uh, the context was teasing someone but we were teasing him about something that that later could have hurt his feelings. You know, it was sort of like funny in the moment, but there was just that edge. It was about, um, about it was more suitable for him to do something than, than for Swami to do it because he was much lower on the evolutionary scale than Swami was. I mean, that was the basic. But it was sort of like a self-evident and we were joking, but... I noticed that Swami absolutely refused to participate. He, he just sat, he sat very conspicuously outside of it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't contribute because he was sensitive enough to realize that even though the man was trying to have, be a good sport about it, it wasn't something that he was free to really laugh about. And, you know, we all gradually sort of noticed that and then stopped. It's very, very interesting. Now the other side of it is we used to joke about this that you know you need devotion on the spiritual path. That's the first thing you have to have. Second thing you have to have is a sense of humor. And it's almost true. I don't know if that would be endorsed by Scripture, but it's it's very close. Swami puts it what, number three? Because that ability to be detached enough to to see. Um, the the absurdity of it, and then to celebrate that. I mean, that really gets you through more than uh, a lot of other qualities. Just like, this is so crazy. What's happening to me? This is just lunatic. How could this be happening? Or, well, here we are, and I'm so sincere, and yet look at the mess I've made out of this. And just to be able to just stand back and enjoy it. The other side of it is, Swamiji has often commented that fanatical people rarely or never have a sense of humor because they don't have the capacity to see things from another perspective. They don't have the capacity to detach themselves from their realities efficiently. I remember once, let's see, there was a, we used to have these events up at the the meditation retreat temple. This was during the 70s. And sometimes there would be skits. People would put on skits. Some outrageous skits were put on there There was one, this is not the one I'm gonna talk about, but many of you know who Ram is. He's a great, big, strong man. He he actually played professional football for a short period of time, that's how strong he is. He played for Berkeley, and I think he was recruited for the 49ers. And there's another man named Prakash, who is just wraith-like. You know, he's over six feet tall, and he probably weighs about 100 pounds. He might still be that small. He always used to wear his hair up in this top knot too, so he's a very unusual character. And there was some skit, and it had to do with energization exercises, and Prakash is doing the energization, and then the curtains close, and when they open, Ram is standing there like this, you know. <laughs> it was just, it was very fun. But one of these skits, the monks got together, and they made a band, Haridas was in the band, and the band, and i they, they did some kind of joke music, I don't remember what the music was, but the band was called Hari Om and the Tatsats. <laughs> and they were all dressed up and you know some, I don't know what it was. They must, have, they must have mocked Swami's music that must have been part of it. And then we drove home that night and Haridas was in the car and there was, there was someone in the car who really thought that it was awful. You know, that it was irreverent and was just really going on and on about how irreverent it was. And Swami was silent, but when we got all the way down to Swami's house, and some of us went into Swami's house, and Hari Das, he was Hari Om, and he was leaving, and when when no one else could hear, Swami leaned out the door and said, I thought it was very funny. (laughs) He wasn't going to cause trouble, but he really wanted him to know, I thought it was very funny. You know, it's just like, it's all right. We don't have to be fanatical about this as long as we're having... I mean, some humor is better than others. And it's a very fine line. But nonetheless... And and you can see how much that sets the tone for everything. You know, I I regret the fact, and I don't know why we can't really do it, that we're so funny in person and most of our uh, paper image is so dull by comparison. You know, we rarely make jokes in our advertising. You know, we, uh, Google can't satisfy every search is, the, is the, you know, the first. But it's very odd that, you know, as funny as we are, that we don't communicate funny as often as we should. And uh, it would be nice if we could, but anyway. Well, let's take a short break and then we'll go on to the next. So just take five minutes or whatever you need. Any comments or thoughts about jokes?
2: I, when you were... Um Talking about a uh, sense of humor as a spiritual quality, I was thinking, I was reminded of the, the story that you would tell of um, Swamiji uh, making fun of wrong attitudes and using that as a sense of humor and thinking mm-hmm. about like, you know, if there's a new car on the road, you'd say, I approve. That's yes, exactly <laughs> as, right. As though, you know. And love God is a bereaved. many splendor thing was right. a really vivid
1: example of that. <laughs> Pass it over to Alan. He had something to say. Yeah, he would act... He would often, with great ceremony, give his approval to things that had nothing to do with him, <laughs> as if the world was breathlessly waiting for him to agree. <laughs> yes, Al? It's because they take themselves.
0: That uh, The one-liner that the reason angels can fly is because they take themselves lightly.
1: Yeah, very good. <laughs> no, it's very true. Yeah, but you know, to just use all this, the more ego you have, the less, you can, the less light you are. The More baggage you have, and the less uh, capacity you have to laugh. It's it's very interesting. Um, speaking of skits, we've had at different times during the years here, we've had people who are more inclined that way. And uh, remember, when you may remember, we were still at the old California Avenue place when Richard Salva, who has great affection for Star Wars, Star Trek, and he he did a skit a Star Trek skit and I was one of the characters in it and it was sort of somehow or another, I don't know what happened but he had me come on and then I think I actually led a meditation and that saved the, the enterprise. And <laughs> I'm not a, a, Trek, a Star Trek fan and I just sort of agreed that I would do it and um, and I was a surprise carrot member of the cast and he got from Ananda Village these little Star Trek Unit, you know unitards, whatever those things are that you wear, so I mean, I actually had to put this thing on and then walk out and so all of a sudden, in the skit they 're calling Captain Praver to the whatever the place is, and I recall I walked out in that little suit, you know, and I think there was a head thing, and I stood there, and the entire room laughed at me. <laughs> I mean, just for standing there in that suit. And it was really an interesting experience. I remember just, you know, like, they're not, they, were, they were laughing with me, but they were primarily laughing at me. <laughs> and there was nothing I could do. They were all just laughing at me, and I just simply had to wait until they were done laughing at me. <laughs> but it was, it was uh, I was thinking actually in terms of ego. It was a very interesting experience because you know a part of you doesn't want to be laughed at, and another part of you says, "Let them laugh at me. What difference does it make?" It was very, it was very fun to watch the whole dynamic of my mind. Um, I I wouldn't do any more of those after it, but but it was good to do it once, one time to watch that happen. Remember when David and whatever that one was, he had to play the preacher man. That was the old the picture at the. Leela Davy would just rope all of us into these absurd things. and That was some kind of... She had this Western. I can't remember what she called it. it. Karma Smoke. That was what it was called. And he was the preacher. There was a mail order bride was involved somehow and it was Karma Smoke, right? <laughs> David, David has never really been real adept at that sort of thing. He was, this was a Star Trek one, too. He got in somehow and uh, his line was make it so remember and it was the last line of the whole play make it so and he's getting closer and he's the only, and i'm watching him and i can tell that he's a little uncertain <laughs> and so it, it comes his big moment and he says let it be <laughs> Darling, expression comes over his face of "Whoa! I don't think that was quite the right thing." <laughs> I actually fell off my chair. I laughed so hard. <laughs> and after that, he refused to do it anymore either. You know, we had just had our turn. That was it. When we were done. <laughs> oh my my! Which it's so funny afterwards, you know, just. You can see what this, You know, Ananda laughs a lot. It's part of who we are. Okay, let's go on. Anything else? Number four. Oh, he was the samurai chef. Lee Starkey with his thing on his head and this huge knife, and he came out and he carved a watermelon. <laughs> you know, he'd pick up this big saber and hack through the watermelon. And he was the samurai hairdresser, too. <laughs> This is he and Leela Davy. She had what, what turned out to be this wig, you know. So he's just doing all this insane stuff. At the end of which he rips her whole hair off. She has a little bald wig on. Her. It was we laughed so hard. It was just insane. But you're allowed to do that in our community, isn't that wonderful? Okay. Um, I have to tell you one more since we're talking about funny things. In, that when, we, when we first started tithing and prosperity at Ananda, our first Rajasi day, um, that this would have been 1980, uh, David Praver and I and uh, Catherine, Catherine Kaivari, um, Kairavi, um, the three of us were in charge of the skit and we didn't... The uh, 60 Minutes was a big television show and we did 90 Minutes to Perfect Joy. That's what it was. And it was a, a television uh, documentary looking back on the origin years of Ananda. But what really made it fun is we had all these commercials in it. And we, had, uh, we made all these commercials up that uh, we just related to ridiculous things. We had faster's toothpaste that if you're fasting, and you know, you, but you still get to brush your teeth, and faster's toothpaste responds to your thoughts Whatever it is that you are craving to eat, you can make your toothpaste taste like that. (laughs) Bill Lusseser brushed his teeth and showed us how good it was. Banana, yes, you know, like (laughs) that. And then we had a news report, sports report, and it was the inner game of tennis, which was a big deal. But the game had advanced to such a point that there was no rackets, no balls, no nets, that the two players just came out onto the court and were judged entirely by their attitude. (laughs) <laughs> anyway tons of fun <laughs> Swami played up to it and it was just great those were, those were the days okay let's go on that was when we wrote the um, tithing song the 10% solution to your woes <laughs> the more you give the more it grows I think <laughs> I'll define the words it was very good We all wore buttons that said the 10% solution. That That was the introduction of tithing. We sang the song. Okay. Number four. He understood others from within themselves and not as other people do from the outside. That is so subtle. I was thinking about that a lot today. Understood people from within themselves and not as other people usually understand each other, which is from the outside. There was a young disciple a B George, whose talk was rather salty and who didn't show the usual respect for his guru in fact, in fact, he was inwardly extremely respectful, but such had been his upbringing. He would actually sit in a chair with one leg over the armrest as he talked with the master, but Master saw behind that facade after some particularly unusual display of what in other disciples would have been blatant disrespect. Master embraced A.B. with a loving laugh. Isn't that something? So, you know, it's, um, let me think how to say it. I knew a woman who, when she married her husband, she used the phrase, which is a popular phrase, he really gets me. And she didn't mean he gets, you know, he gets my goat. She meant he really understands who I am. He he really knows who I am, and that she talked about how much that meant. I had a very interesting experience that way. My brother, um, who lives in Sacramento, and and he's a um, he lives by himself, and he he has his own very well defined life. And I see him occasionally, but we haven't our lives have not intersected that much. And in fact, I didn't really get to know him that well until I became an adult. And when I got to know him better, it was so fascinating to me in in a very peculiar way, he he understood me almost more than anyone I knew. Because we were raised together and we just had this strange... And, and one of the factors was we had exactly the same sense of humor. My sense of humor is a little strange. And I, I hold a lot of it in because I have finally learned that people do not get it. But with him, he just, you know, like almost intuitively even before the joke was told, we would just see it. Now, that was based on some kind of karmic affinity and, you know, the reasons we were drawn together, raised by the same parents, who knows what it was. And I just spent the weekend with my sister and there's a lot of that same quality. Even, you know, it's it's very interesting. So that's one kind of understanding from the inside, which is that you have an affinity for that person. But Master understood everybody from the inside. And so it wasn't just a question... Well, I guess it actually was a question. He was familiar with every possible state of consciousness, and so he could understand the actual states of consciousness that he was looking at with everyone, and so he would know. He would know that whatever the, this behavior was, what he would always see and feel the consciousness behind it. Whereas many, many people would misunderstand when Bella um, Potapovskaya died. Um, Maria was the younger sister of Bella. Bella died of cancer earlier. The whole, But the mother and both sisters died relatively young of cancer. It was the family disease. But when Bella died, Bella was a very unusual person. Swamiji made the remark, more than perhaps almost anyone I know, he said, most of Bella's nature was existing on another plane. Only part of her was here. Only part of it manifested here. Afterwards, Maria said, how did he know that? You know, she'd been his, her sister and so she was privy to that fact about her. But I remember her, her saying that, how did he know that? Well, of course, he knew it from um, expanded perception. But he also knew it because when, he, when Swamiji is with people, he doesn't take them on face value. He tries to feel their vibrations and tune into where what they're really trying to say. I mean, how many times in your life Have you intended one thing and then expressed another? I don't just mean faux pas, but just having just a completely different idea of of what you're gonna make happen and then just have it not happen. Or, Or you mean so well and nobody seems to understand. Or you have such a sincere desire to be a certain way but you're not karmically able to bring it across. I mean, there's just so many thousands of ways But we have our own inner reality that we're always working with. And so Master always looked at people, and you see how it all goes together. He had no ego of his own. And therefore, he he wasn't caught by not being able to perceive realities beyond his own reality. He had great respect for people, so he was always sort of looking for the best in them. He was was looking for a, a... who they, they were in truth, not merely who they appeared to be. I think his sense of humor actually helped because he, he just wasn't attached. Uh, he, didn't take, he didn't take small things seriously. He could feel what the heart was about. A lot of that ability to tune into people um, from the inside really has to be a heart connection. That you, you feel people's vibrations first before you see their faces or their personalities or um you know a lot of times when i'm i'm somewhere uh anywhere you know you're you're with people and you 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 try to imagine them in completely other settings with their children um you know with their husbands in their own homes uh meditating um doing their spiritual practices um, in their sincere relationship to Master, whatever it might be. I had that, um, the, the the book that I have been writing that I will get back to as soon as the school play is done, um, about miracles and answered prayers. And it's the second time I've had this opportunity because the book I wrote about Swamiji was also similar. Um, where I've, sat in front of people and had them talk to me about about something that was very personal to them and very spiritual to them, and had them just look at me and talk to me about their, inner, their relationship with God. And it was the days that I spent doing that, I spent about five days interviewing people that way. It was just stunning to me because every single person has this relationship with God. And God has this relationship with every single person. And it didn't matter how old they were, how competent they were, how articulate they were, how attractive or unattractive. None of those factors which usually help define people. It was each person was just talking about what it was like to be inside of them. And, And to be inside of them with this. And some of the stories were stunningly interesting and some of them were so subjective that they were just absolutely useless for the book, but they were deeply meaningful to the person. And it was it was an extraordinary privilege for me and um, made me very interested in writing the, the book because of wanting to be able to put that across. But of course, that's how Master looked at everyone. He, he just looked at people. As Swamiji, as I've told you before, Swamiji not knowing what color people's eyes are, because he doesn't look at their eyes, he looks through them to the vibration of consciousness that's being manifested through them. Because, going back to what we talked about earlier, all we are is the energy. All we are is the Aum vibration. We're all cut from the same fabric. And when you get inside of someone, that's when you begin to know who they are and where they're going and what their next step is. And instead of seeing people in superficial ways, you feel what's real to them. I I know in my advice to people about um, marriage and so on, when I used to talk a lot more about that subject, I remember really having to figure out that I had to really think about David's life in terms of what it felt like for him, not for what what I wanted it to be like. You know, just... What is it like to be him? Where is he going? And what is he trying to do? And there was a a period of time when I was doing more couples counseling. And there was just a series of of events where these women would come to me and they would basically tell me that things were pretty good with their husbands except there were just these few areas. And after a while, there was this pattern appearing in which pretty much every woman's complaint was that her husband was a man. (laughs) And I had learned by that time from David that, well, I remember when Swamiji was persuaded to write a book called Secrets for Women and at first he demurred and said, I can't write that book. You know, I don't know what Secrets for Women are. There's a book, he wrote Secrets for Men and then, but then he 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 just found himself in a totally feminine bob, and for a day or two or a couple of days he wrote that book and he just felt like a female during the period of time he was doing that. And then after he was done, he sort of came back to his more androgynous but male-oriented way. And he, jokingly, but not really, he said, you know, I really experience what it is to be a woman. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it's just terrible. He said, it's just this endless up and down of emotion. Sort of like, how how can you stand it? He said, I much prefer being a man. And I remember the moment with David when I realized that I was trying to persuade him I wanted him to behave in ways that were more like a woman than a man. And essentially what he said to me, I'm not inclined. I don't even find it attractive. You know? And even more than that, he chose to be in a male body because he wanted to be a man. And so for me to try to make him into a woman just because I'm a woman, it would be easier for, for me if he related to me the way I want him to relate to me. But that's not his priority. You know, the male consciousness, whether you're in a male or female body, doesn't matter. But the male consciousness is much less personal. It's much less inclined to to process about all the little things. It's It's the sun, not the moon. The sun is very steady and very predictable and shifts very slowly. The moon is waxing and waning all the time. And women are always wanting to know how you feel right now about this. And the man is wanting to forget how he feels right now and look at the horizon and go where he's going. And you know the female tries to pull the man down into the little things like this and he doesn't want to go there. He wasn't born to go there. And I I just one day you know really realized if I'm going to be even a friend to this person what to speak of a wife I have to see what his reality is. Where is he going? And even if you know, my direction might be better. (laughs) It doesn't make any difference. I mean, it isn't, but it doesn't make any difference. But it it was very, very, very interesting to just sort of really look at the world from inside somebody else's head. And imagine, that's what a master always does. He always looks at you. He always looks at you and he sees it from your point of view. And that's why... Swamiji, as I use as my example, so we can always say something so helpful. He can always, always, I mean, is that he's a brilliant leader because he can always suggest to you a course of action that is where you were about to put your foot or where you could put your foot instead of giving you a course of action that might work for somebody else or maybe worked for him or is randomly taken out of a book or is some little speech that sounded good the first 16 times you told it so you'll tell it again. You know, for, and he's just so incredibly creative because, and it's not hard. He doesn't find it difficult. He just feels you from the inside and then helps you go where you're capable of going and where you're trying to go. Um, it, it's very fun. It's really quite fun when you can get into it. And I, I mean, it's, it's really a lot about heart first. You just have to find, find the person vibrationally and then you can find them in other ways that are helpful intellectually, mentally, if you need to. Does that make sense? But that doesn't mean, and this is an important part of this, this doesn't mean that you just collapse into their reality. But it means even if you're trying to help them, you have to help them from the reality that they're standing in, not from the reality you're standing in. Yes, Ramani. But the, um, the key to appreciating what each has to give the other is the impersonality we were talking about, to get to the point, the point where we're feeling the spine. Then that depth of feeling that is characteristically feminine is a beautiful thing to see in a man, and it's a beautiful thing to see a woman at that point of impersonality where she can Right. Right. I mean if you if you really want to talk about male and female, that gets to be a more subtle conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I I did fundamentally appreciate that the, the line of development often the the, the, the the priorities for development are very different for men or women. Yes. And to try to lure one or the other into the other Right. may not have anything to do with why that person incarnated. Right. In the end, we all become perfectly balanced. There's no question about that. When I said even if it's a good direction, that was, I mean, I, I, I'm not giving a seminar, I'm not really interested in giving a seminar about marriage, but that was one of the things I had to learn and I learned it really early on. I mean, I, I first had it, I was confronted with it when I was trying to persuade David of something, which I used to do a lot more than I try to do now, and somehow another Swamiji got involved in the conversation. And it's not clear to me exactly how he got involved, but he was. And I was frustrated, and I said to the effect of, well, don't you think it would be good if he did so-and-so? Somebody says, oh, yes. He said, but uh, you have to wait till it occurs to him. And with David, directly once it was do you know what it is that I'm wanting from you? Oh, yes, he said. I said, well, why don't you cooperate? He said, it's not my priority. And that was not to say that he was being a sloucher in any way. It was simply that I was not relating to him from the inside. Even though it was a perfectly good idea, it was not his priority. I mean, think... And as soon as he said that, I thought about myself, thousands of things I could work on, but you have to work where your inner energy flows. And that's why a lot of times the advice people give you is terrible advice, because it's not related to your inner reality. People are not tuned in to who you really are, they're just tuned into platitudes, what would be a good idea, what I need in this situation. I, I don't think it's easy, I mean, I'm a person who's given a lot of bad advice over the years. Not been given, have given from exactly that problem which is not really understanding who I was dealing with. You know, I made a terrible mistake with one individual. It's a very interesting experience for me. Because I I just could never get on the right foot with this person for many years. They've they've long since gone away. Um, Maybe this is why. (laughs) But they would present their reality to me and I would do what I often do which is I would, I would clarify what they said to me and then present it back. And, you know, most of the time that works. Someone will say, well, I'm having difficulty with this or this is what I'm concerned about. And then later on I would say in the conversation, well, inasmuch as you feel this way, because people often ha- don't hear themselves, so I would say it back. And as a rule, it would be helpful. I would just draw it right out of their perception. With this person, they would tell me what was going on with them And then I would say, well, in as much as you feel this way, and then they would immediately say, how dare you say that about me? (laughs) (laughs) And it went on way longer than it should have before I got it. And then I was, years later, I was talking to someone else and I was just talking about that difficulty. person immediately, because they had more brains than I did about this, more intuition, said, oh, what they were articulating to you was their fear and they wanted you to repudiate it. You know, and even though it was expressed as a fact, they wanted me to contradict it. And so when I affirmed it, it just totally freaked them. But I was just in my brain. I just wasn't able to see that person from the inside. If I'd been able to see the person from the inside, as my friend finally did, they would have sensed all that fear. But I was too busy being myself. Very, very serious lesson. You know, you can't decide ahead of time what's a good idea. You have to actually just be there with whoever it is and feel their reality from the inside. Who are you? What is it like to be you? You know, how did you get to this point? Where are you trying to go? And only then are you in a position to speak. And that I mean Master would look like the people next to him because he would match his vibration so completely. Imagine. I actually, more consciously, but sometimes, you know, you see, sometimes you see these guys walking down the street, <laughs> you know, kind of like that. And I just thought to myself, like, well, who would you be? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's not a joke. You, you hear a strange tone of voice, you just imitate it. What, why would I talk like that? You hear somebody that has mannerisms, why would they speak like that? Why do they never finish their sentences? You know, why does their voice always go up at the end? Why is there that high-pitched squeak? Whatever it is, just try to feel it. Like, what kind of consciousness creates this reality? And often it's very, very helpful. I mean, I, I have to do it more consciously. Master just did it automatically. But it's definitely worth doing. I remember I was impressed for a time with... a lot. There was a lot of big men around me and I was impressed by how big they were. And I was making some extremely ridiculous comment in the company of Diva, who's a big man. And he finally just looked at me and he said, Asha, it's just the right size body for me. <laughs> and it was a very helpful remark because I realized it is. It, it seems like a large body to me, but he's a big man. And, and that's part of who he is. You know. And he just made the body that matched his consciousness. Self-evident, isn't it? And, but you, sometimes you have to just stop and think about all those things. All right. That's enough for tonight. Thank you all very much for coming. We'll see you next week.